The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to our Meet the Author event, and glad you all could be here. Um, we are uh, broadcasting in Clubhouse and on ACB Media 5. It's great to have everybody here. And um, I um, would like to um, introduce everyone to Dan Bigley, um, author of Beyond the Bear. And um, as I was telling, well, first of all, we will um, have Dan you know, present and share his story and uh, tell his journey. Um, right now, we'll have everybody stay muted, and we'll do a question and answer um, segment a little bit later. But uh, as I had mentioned to you, Dan, I um, had read your book about a year or so ago, and I found it to be like an incredible story, and it was quite compelling, and it was one of the best memoirs I have read. And that's why I like, reached out to you um, in the spring and to talk with you and um, hear, hear more about you and your story. And then I've invited you here um, to uh, talk with us here in the ACB community. And uh, this event is sponsored by Arizona Council. So um, Dan, uh, whenever you're ready, you can uh, you know present to us and you have the floor. So we'll have about 40 minutes or so um, for you to uh, share with us your uh, story and journey. Glad you could be here. Welcome. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Pre appreciate the invitation and happy to be here to share some story and, and share this hour with, uh, with this group from ACB. It's really exciting. So appreciate the invitation. Yeah, so, you know, it's my story. It's obviously a story very close to me, near and dear to my heart, uh, since it is a, my life story, essentially. So it's always hard to figure out, oh, where do we begin the story? Um, but in the interest of time, I, you know, I think I'll jump right in. But just because I start, I'm, I'm going to start kind of with sharing sort of what happened that night. I'm going to start there for a reason, not because by any means is this sort of the highlight of the story was a bear mauling. Um, here in Alaska, um, where my family and I live, but more so so that we can get to the good stuff, which is really, as the title of the book implies, sort of beyond the bear, um, how I learned to live and love again after being blinded by a bear. It really isn't a story about, you know, bear attack survivor or, um, you know, a story about how, you know, one person sort of overcame all the odds. It, it, it truly, in my mind, is a story about how a community of people uh, came together in my time of need, uh, in, in my darkest hour, so to speak. Um, and with the support of that community and with the love of that community, whether it was friends and family, um, you know, students that I went to school with, uh, students that were part of my cohort, my colleagues and coworkers um, that have supported me in the workforce, 
um, you know, rehabilitation specialists, obviously, therapists, nurses, doctors, et cetera, uh, vocational rehabilitation. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, some well known to me and others, you know, uh, strangers or uh, just other community members that really came together. And so to me, it's a story about how with that community of support, um, you know, we can not only survive, you know, unthinkable things, but, you know, have find a way to live a life worth living and, and a really meaningful life that gives us a sense of purpose um, and, and joy and happiness. And, and then I think almost more importantly, and a part of that life worth living is how do we become a part of that community of support for others, right? Uh, how do we help others, support others, connect to others, be a friend to others, be um, a coworker for others? Because it, it is that community support that really supports resiliency um, at every level. A resilience of our families, resiliency individu as individuals, resiliency uh, within our workplaces, within our communities, uh, and so on. So anyway, with, with that, I'll, I'll jump in. So the, the bear attack itself, um, you know, happened, obviously, it's pretty tragic, and I'm, I'm going to try and to spare as many of the, the gruesome details as possible. But the truth is, it was just a, a really pretty horrific, uh, life-changing event where, um, you know, my life flashed before my eyes. So um, I apologize if, if the content is at all upsetting to folks. And um, if it is, make sure you reach out and talk to somebody, uh, connect with somebody uh, so that you can share how the story impacted you personally. So. Well, it was one of those uh, bluebird summer Alaskan days. Uh, I was out fishing on the key, on the confluence of the Kenai and Russian rivers. And so I'm in the Chugach Mountains. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of our state with snow-capped peaks. And you can look up at the mountainside from the river and see uh, herds of groups of doll sheep, you know, moving across the mountainside. Uh, frequently, we'll encounter moose. Um, and somewhat frequently along the river, you might encounter bear. Um, however, most of the time they want, you know, nothing to do with us uh, as humans. And so you usually see them running away or walking away. Um, it was one of those bluebird sunny summer days where, you know, it was warm enough to be in short sleeves, but there was just enough breeze to keep the mosquitoes at bay. Um, those days are, days are few and far between uh, for us Alaskans. Uh, so we, we tend to cherish those days and, you know, stay up late because in the Alaska midnight sun, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty remarkable thing. So anyway, it was, we were wrapping up a day of fishing and, and getting ready to head back to the trailhead. So we actually did head back to the trailhead. We, we hiked about 20 minutes uh, from the river back towards the trailhead. It was me and my, my buddy John that I was with and then my dog Maya. When... We were probably no more than a stone's throw from the trailhead. My dog Maya left out a little bit of a growl, and it was just enough to cause me to uh, look up and, and wonder what it was that uh, had caught her attention. And sure enough, on the trail in front of us, about 30 feet away, uh, was a large uh, grizzly, um, grizzly bear, brown bear. And I'd had many encounters with bear prior to this day. Um, but this, from the very beginning, was a very different type of encounter. Um, she was 
clearly an agitated bear. Uh, and so she flipped around to face us, stomping her paws on the on the ground. Her hair, um, her hat, you know, shackles kind of stood on end. She was huffing and puffing. Um, and so my friend John and I, you know, obviously trained to as to what to do in these types of situations. Um, we decided the best thing was just to stand close together, um, raise our arms in the air, which makes us look larger to the bear. Now, bears don't have very good eyesight, uh, particularly at any sort of distance. Um, and we just kind of talked about our strategy. So we decided to back away slowly and head further upriver. We were gonna clear the area um, and give that bear as much space as uh, she needed. So we were able to do that. We were able to back away and uh, start heading upriver on the trail. Uh, we were out of view of the bear. And so at this point, we were feeling pretty good about the situation. Um, we were kind of processing like, whoa, that was kind of a crazy encounter um, with each other. When suddenly in front of us on the trail, uh, the alders started shaking vigorously. So at this point, we thought we'd been cut off by the same bear, which is not a good uh, indication of the situation, not, not a good situation you want to find yourself in. So we turned around and started heading back towards uh, the trailhead and where we had just come from at a pretty brisk pace. Um, at this point, you know, my heart's pounding in my shirt. My stomach kind of sinks into my toes because um, we realize, you know, that, yeah, this is just not, not, a, not an ideal situation. Well, after only about 10 steps, though, uh, the totally unimaginable happened. And that is that with the shaking bushes now behind us, um, directly in front of us, the bear came ripping around the corner wildly um, and in just a flash was upon us. What we know now that we didn't know then um, is that without even realizing that there were cubs in the equation, uh, that the shaking bushes that we saw um, that are now behind us um, was where they were stashed in the woods. So uh, we had put ourselves in the worst possible situation, which was between a bear and a cub. So we are getting a little background noise. If you could please mute, I would appreciate that. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, anybody? I got them. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, so um, Maya, who was in the front of our group, she was my dog. Um, she leapt off the trail to the left, and the bear swiped as she passed, um, but did not um, did not connect with her. And so at this point, my friend John, who's directly in front of me, he goes leaping off the trail to the right the as the bear is charging. And there's only twenty people. Hold on, I, I need you to mute, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so the bear swipe, but didn't connect. And at this point, the only thing left between the charging bear and myself, uh, or but the charging bear and the cubs was myself. And so in this moment, you know, reality had started to warp itself and, and this is kind of some of the typical things that happen in very traumatic moments where um, I think the the most striking part of that experience was just time seemed to come to a standstill 
uh, time really slowed down pretty dramatically. And I remember thinking like, so we're trained um, in bear, when bears are charging, they oftentimes do what's called a bluff charge. And so we're trained to sort of stand our ground. Um, but I had this voice in my head that was saying, this is real, this is really happening. You need to do something. This is real, this is really happening. You need to do something. And as the bear got closer on the trail, her eyes burning yellow with fury, her head getting larger and larger as she approached and her mouth agape. You know, it would never occur to me that this image uh, would be one of the last things I would ever see with my eyes, um, that it would become the source of many uh, nightmares um, and many an intrusive thought for weeks, months, and, and even years to come. So it struck me that I needed to do something. So I leaped off the trail as well to the left. Um, but as I dove into some bushes, before I'd even hit the ground, the bear had a hold of my leg and was pulling me out of the bushes. Uh, she then picked me up and drugged me off into uh, the alders um, where the mauling continued. And during this time, I was kind of in and out of consciousness. Uh, as the mauling went on and there was one point in time where I when I came to consciousness I realized something very bad had happened which is I had been rolled over and was now face up and the bear was standing over the top of me and that's when she turned her head sideways um, and bit down across my face from side to side and then chewed and so in this moment everything First went went dark, and then in the next moment, I was I was trying to figure out where I was and what was going on because the first thing I became strikingly aware of is that the horror and the terror of the bear mauling was gone. Um, it was almost peaceful, and I was looking around and became aware there was no shape, no form. I couldn't really see anything. All there was was this brilliantly bright blue light. And I realized that I was at a crossroads, that I had a choice to make. Um, and the choice was to either hold on and fight for life or to let go. And just, it would all be over. And it was clear that that would be the easier choice, um, just to let go. But on the other hand, it was clear that to fight to hold on to life, there were just so many unknowns. I didn't know if I would be able to survive, what kinds of injuries I would endure, and I certainly had no idea that if I survived, I would spend the rest of my life living uh, completely blind. But upon re realizing that I was at this crossroads, at this decision point, uh, for, for reasons unknown to myself, um, in, that, in that moment, though, an image of my mom pops into my mind's eye. And she was alive and well. It's not like I was seeing somebody who was no longer with us or anything like that. But there she was. And it was like watching a home video. And she was just waving to me and smiling and waving and just radiant, um, about as radiant as I've ever seen her. And while I don't know why this image came to me in a moment like that, um, I do know that it filled me with one of the only feelings, perhaps in life, that would make life in a moment like that worth fighting for. And that is, you know, she filled me with the feeling of love, you know, and not just any love, but, you know, that mother and child um, sort of love, that primordial love. 
And in that instant, I knew my mind had been made up, that I was going to fight for life and hold on. Interestingly, and somehow, I mean, somewhat miraculously, I had this thought process in that moment that I made that decision. And that was that I recognized that there were, there were you know, many different possible outcomes um, and many challenges which lie ahead. But I figured that the worst possible scenario, the worst possible outcome would be that someday I would look back at this moment that I made this decision and regret it, that I would regret the decision to fight for life. And so I made a deal with myself in that moment to never allow myself to look back and question that decision, that from that moment forward, my life was going to be about taking one small step forward at a time, never to look back. Um, and so it was with that that I recognized um, that I needed to rest and save every bit of energy that I had um, just to hold on to, to what life I had left. And so I, I sort of felt like I was allowed to stay in this space for a while, this space that I now refer to as the, the place of the blue light. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I, I was going back into my body at the Russian River. At first, I could see myself from overhead. I was looking down at, the, at myself, um, laying on the forest floor. And then the next thing I knew, I was waking up from inside my body. And I could tell right away that the bear was gone uh, when I regained consciousness. I was a trained wilderness first responder um, with thousands of trail miles under my belt. So the, my first instinct was to assess my capacity for self-evacuation, um, but I almost immediately became aware that you know, I, I really had no control over my arms or legs. Um, I could feel, you know, blood kind of cooling in my waders, fishing waders and under my head. And so I realized like, man, I've, I've just got to lay as still as possible and as quiet as possible and wait for rescue if I'm going to be able to survive this. Um, so anyway, obviously we were in a pretty remote area of Alaska. Um, so fortunately for me, uh, my dog and my friend John were able to uh, get the attention of some other fishermen who started to gather around. Uh, we were able to get uh, somebody with a cell phone to start hiking out to get the cell phone range uh, so that they could call for emergency assistance. So it would be about two hours um, before the EMTs would arrive and about four and a half hours or so before uh, the helicopter would arrive um, and about five hours before I would make it to uh, the Providence Alaska Medical Center for Definitive Medical Care. And, you know, it was definitely pretty tenuous. Uh, life was pretty tenuous. And in, in, during that time, I was, you know, told at one point in time, I would stop breathing for a while. And right when they would go to start com chest compressions and, and CPR, that I would sort of gasp for air. Um, and then, I mean, I think most strikingly, uh, the emergency room doctor's report uh, put, put it this way. They said, patient arrived in a condition incompatible with life, eyes, nose, and forehead anatomy unrecognizable. So that's really where the journey begins, right? Uh, the journey beyond the bear. Um, 
And, you know, it's with this, I guess, I think of, I don't know, I, 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 could, I could go a lot of different directions, but the story that comes to mind first and foremost is one of my favorite uh, stories of my childhood. I was, I grew up in the, near the Redwoods in California. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time hiking and, and, you know, exploring the wilderness there. And I'll always remember this time that I was uh, hiking off trail, just charging right up the, the Little Sur River there in Big Sur, California. And I came to this spot where, you know, there was a section of redwood tree. It was like a big log that had clearly been burnt in a fire and broken apart and then flooded down river um, in a flood. And it had become wedged between two large boulders in the middle of the river. And so this burnt up, broken apart, you know, six foot long section of redwood tree was now hovering yeah, about six feet above the middle of the river between two large rocks. And the remarkable thing about redwoods is they can do this thing, especially after a fire called crown sprouting, uh, which is pretty unique to the redwoods. And anyway, this burnt up, broken apart, you know, redwood tree hovering six feet above the middle of a river somehow found enough life inside that it must have connected roots to the water and had enough sunlight there in the middle of the river because when i found it it now stood as a 50 foot tall redwood tree hovering above the middle of the river and you know to me this really just this imagery this this scene really encompasses not just the audacity of life to survive but you know truly to thrive and reach for the sun um, despite all of the odds uh, that are placed against it and you know for me and in, in my story of recovery um, you know it's interesting I was in a medically induced coma for about 12 days and as I was brought out of this uh, this sedation. I'll always remember when the doctors told me, you know, hey, just so you know, we had to, you know, take your eyes and, um, you're, you know, they told me that I was going to be blind for the rest of my life. And, um, you know, and I didn't, I didn't have any conception of what that meant. I, I like to joke now, you know, that I was the first blind person I ever met. <laughs> and so I had no idea what life for a blind person could be like. Um, and so the primary feeling, you know, in addition to just everything else I was going through with the trauma and, um, and, and still definitely very much on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of hoping that lethal infection didn't set in and things like that, um, I was overwhelmed with fear and, about what life as a blind person could be like. It, you know, in fact, it's it's kind of a crazy love story that's wrapped up in the middle of all of this because the very night before the bear attack, um, this really awesome woman, um, this girl at the time, we were in our young 20s, uh, but, you know, we had just started a relationship the night before the bear. And so it's crazy. We had this really special night. And then the next day I go out and get mauled by a bear and, and you know, disfigured and completely blind. 
And I'll, I'll never forget when she came into the hospital for the first time to visit because she sort of kneels on the, on the ground in front of where I was, um, where I was sitting. And she puts her elbows up on my knees, you know, and, and just kind of kneeling there. And I, I couldn't talk at the time. Uh, my mouth was wired shut. I was breathing with the aid of a, um, an oxygen tank in a tracheotomy. Um, and so I, I just wrote down on a whiteboard that was that I had. I said, uh, I felt like I needed to get the elephant out of the room first. So I said, well, first I said, crazy. And she's like, yeah, this is really crazy. And then I said, I'm blind. And she's like, yeah, I know. And I'm really sorry. And then I, I said, the only other thing left really that I had to say, which was I'm scared uh, because I was scared. I was scared that I would never experience love in my life or, or marriage and family, kids, uh, never experienced being a father. I was afraid that I would never experience meaningful employment, meaning work that was gratifying to me, work that gave me a sense of purpose and was fulfilling. Um, yeah, I, I had no no idea. Um, certainly, I didn't you know, see myself recreating much or doing the things that I had come to love and enjoy. So it was very dark and kind of bleak, uh, one might say hopeless, um, until uh, just a couple days later, this gentleman, a complete stranger to me, um, had heard about what had happened to me. He lived down in Juneau at the time. And he had spent over 40 years as the only person he knew of in the entire world to be completely blinded by a grizzly bear and live to tell about it. He had been 17 years old, was out hunting uh, when, when the accident happened for him. And, and that was over 40 years before this happened. So he got on an airplane and walked into my hospital room and introduced himself to me. And the first thing he said is, hey, Dan, like, I, you know, he kind of told me who he was and, and told me a little bit about his story. And then he said, I think you're going to need this talking watch. And he gave it to me and introduced me to the concept of a talking watch. And over the next several days, as he hung out with my family and I, you know, he was telling stories about how after he had become blind, he had gone on to uh, finish high school and college, um, how he had gone on to get a PhD and work for the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation how he'd gone traveling around the world and climbed the Eiffel Tower and climbed a volcano uh, in the Galapagos Islands. And he, he went on to tell me about how he still goes fishing uh, and, and actually owned a fishing boat um, that he and his friends could use. Um, so what he was doing in that moment, you know, as a complete stranger to my family and I, is he was giving us the most valuable resource that we could have asked for in a moment like that. And that is, he was giving us the resource of hope, you know, hope that there is a life worth living. Um, and that's kind of what, it, what is a life worth living? You know, it's different for every person uh, in terms of what your values are, really, and, and what you value. So I encourage everybody to kind of take the time to think about what is a life worth living and, and what are the things that make that make your life worth living? What are the things that are most important to you and, and how fully engaged are you uh, in living that life? And we'll, we'll circle back around to that, but uh, 
it was really important to me. And he was giving me this hope that there there were these this, these possibilities that there was um, a future that yeah really represented that life worth living for me. So so anyway, I started really pushing myself, and you know that really gave me some motivation to um, accelerate my progression through the healing process and to begin as quickly as possible sort of a rehabilitation process. But unfortunately, you know, uh, there were some infections and other challenges in my healing journey. And so it became evident that I was going to need further treatment outside of Alaska. Um, So ultimately had to say goodbye uh, to my friends here in Alaska for a while um, and say goodbye to Amber. And, you know, Amber was that girl I was just talking about. So it was clear I was in no shape to be in a new relationship. And so I said my goodbyes to Amber. Uh, we hugged. We kind of set each other free. And, um, you know, but we, we I t- totally knew we were going to keep in touch just as friends um, and that type of thing. So anyway, off I went uh, to the University uh, California San Francisco Hospital to, to con- receive continued uh, medical care that I needed down there. and. So the, the accident happened in July, and then by about uh, late November is when I finally was medically cleared, um, so to speak. And so that's when I kind of really was able to shift into, you know, starting to learn the skills for the blind, uh, learning how to use a cane, um, you know, learning how to do some of the activities of daily living, just the basic, you know, tricks and hacks. Uh, and uh, was preparing ultimately to to go to a school um, that where I could learn you know more intensively um, all the various skills that that we need as blind folks to navigate the world successfully. Um, was getting information about you know guide dogs and when would that become a part of the equation and what would that look like and what's involved. Um, and in the meantime, too, I was also receiving extensive therapy um, to to help me deal with the trauma, uh, the grief and loss, uh, vision loss. Uh, so I was working with a therapist uh, pretty, in, pretty intensively for a while. And, um, and when I noticed that it was really interfering because there were some times in my journey where, you know, anxiety um, and just, I don't know, maladaptive responses to situations. Like I found that even exciting things, even things that should have been positive, anything that was emotionally dysregulating at all, didn't matter if it was supposed to be good or fun or exciting um, or bad, uh, everything was just overwhelming. And so I I really couldn't tolerate um, much of anything. Uh, And so I noticed that some of those mental health challenges were getting, were interfering with my ability to engage in life. And so therapy was a really important tool for me um, to work through some of that, to understand that, um, and and ultimately uh, to to get treatment so that I had less power and control over my experience in life. Um, And it's not to say, you know, that it's completely gone. Um, Obviously, hard things in life have a tendency to stick around for a long time, uh, but certainly was able to help me get to a place to where I felt like I had the tools I needed to to cope with that, to cope with the challenges and manage those challenges uh, and move on with my life. So um, anyway, uh, there, there came a point where in, in my healing journey and, and all of this, where my brother had just been visiting Alaska and he 
came back down to California where I was staying and he was like, Hey Dan, like, Hey, I just thought you should know that it seems like Amber might be seeing somebody. And on the outside, I was like, Oh, that's cool. You know, cause I, I didn't really have any expectations that she would wait for me or that we would be together someday. Um, and certainly that was nothing that had been communicated, but internally, I, I can definitely say that kind of hurt a little bit. It was a definitely a little bit of a gut punch. And so I, I did the only thing that I, uh, you know, could think to do, which was to immediately call her. Uh, and I'm glad she picked up the phone uh, when I called. And the first thing I said was, hey, I just wanted to let you know I heard you might be dating somebody. And I just want you to know that's totally cool. <laughs> And she says, uh, yeah, I am. And he's already getting really sick of how much I talk about you. So for me, this was uh, another one of those pivotal moments where it was that infusion of hope, right? And so once again, that hope to me translated to incredible motivation um, to really move forward in my life um, beyond rehabilitation, beyond recovery, and, and really just push through uh, that, that process. And so at that point in time, I started going to therapy twice a week. <laughs> I did finally make it to the School for the Blind. I was, I was very, very much engaged in, in that. It was a year-long uh, program uh, that I was able to complete in seven months um, because I was just so committed to progressing. And primarily because I wanted to get back to Alaska, I wanted to see, and first of all, I needed to get back to Alaska to have a sense of closure um, and to have some self-empowerment, a sense of agency in the process, uh, because by definition, trauma is a powerless experience. And so to sort of retake some of that in your life, to have that sense of agency, to me, was a really important part of a healing journey. Um, but also to me, I thought, you know, hey, I can't be with Amber. Like any relationship will not work if it's based off of, oh, Dan needs somebody to take care of him or, oh, I'm, I feel responsible. And so therefore I have to be with Dan like an obligation. Um, yeah, that was not going to be a workable situation for for anybody involved. And so it was clear to me that a relationship was going to work that it had to be based off of my own merits it had to be based off of the value that i could add and bring to someone's life um, in partnerships so that became my focus i didn't know what i was going to do um, before that i had been before the bear i had been working with kids um, troubled kids kids with mental health challenges and i was an activity therapist so i was taking them out into the community out um, you know, to recreate um, and teaching healthy ways of coping and living, uh, teaching life skills, that type of thing. I'm kind of like a mentor, um, but with a specific skill set in, in behavioral health. And I knew I couldn't do that job per se because it required lots of driving. But I thought that if I went back to school and got a master's, that I could become a therapist and continue to work with the same youth that I had enjoyed working with, um, you know, still in that helping role, 
but this time as a clinical therapist as opposed to um, a direct service provider. So, and and I thought that that would be a good match for my skill set, uh, for the skills that I did have, you know, which kind of brings me to the point, you know, I hope you guys have all heard, I'm, I'm sure you, most of you probably have, that, you know, it's not our disability that matters as much as it is our various abilities uh, that truly matter the most. And so uh, that's what I was focused on is what are my various abilities and, and how can I match that with something that, you know, still would create that path towards meaningful, purposeful, mission-filled, uh, you know, work for me. So I applied um, to, to graduate school. And I had no idea if I would be successful. I had no idea how to be a blind student. I'd never been a blind student before, but just like every other challenge, challenge to use a cane, challenge to cook and clean, challenge to use the computer, um, you know, just fill in the blank, right? Challenge to match socks. Um, like every other challenge, there was really only one way to find out you know, if I could do it, and there was only one way to learn how to do it, and that is, you know, just full submersion. Let's let's try. Um, and so, I'll never forget uh, the day that I got my acceptance letter, and I've been accepted, but it was contingent upon getting a B or better in statistics. So this seemed like a <laughs> perhaps a greater challenge than I had initially recognized, because as I was thinking about the nature of statistics. I'm thinking about the charts and graphs and histograms and bell curves and probabilities. And I'm thinking, oh man, you know, how am I going to do that? Um, so anyway, uh, it, of course the, the challenge starts at the very beginning though, once I got back to Alaska, you know, which is how am I going to find the camp? How am I going to get to the campus? How am I going to find the right building on campus, then navigate to the right classroom, and then find a seat to sit in. Because uh, pragmatically, that was my first challenge, and that was a significant challenge. I had only been blind, you know, less than a couple of years at this point. Um, and so I was working with an orientation mobility instructor and, you know, learning the bus routes and uh, learning to navigate uh, across the street and into the campus and through the campus and, and you know, to the right building where my uh, first classes were, were to be held and so on. And I practice and practice and practice. Well, I walk in on the first day of class only to discover that they had reassigned all the classrooms, right? So like so many other times, uh, you know, humbly, uh, ask for help uh, and have to be humble enough to accept that help time and time again, uh, find my way to the right classroom, only to have my second sort of fear or anxiety realized, which is that the teacher was teaching on an overhead projector in the front of the class, and it just was not a format that I could learn statistics effectively. And so this caused me to experience significant panic attacks during class repeatedly, every class to start off the, the school year. So rather than learning statistics, I was literally having conversations like this in my head. I, my legs and arms would go numb and woozy. Um, my you know, head would feel like I was hearing everything through a, a, a large, you know, 20 foot long um, 
piece of ducting or a big pipe or something because everything sounded like it was coming from so far away. Uh, my stomach would feel nauseous. You know, I would feel like I was going to pass out. And the conversation in my head was like, okay, I'm going to pass out. Maybe I should get up and go to the bathroom. No, because if I pass out there, like I could hit my head and it might be a while before they find me. So maybe I should just pass out here. I think that would be better. <laughs> and, it, and in moments like this, I wanted nothing more than just to get up and leave and go home and crawl into bed and give up. But you know what it was that kept me going? The, the thing that caused me not to do that was thinking about all of those people that I talked about earlier. Um, I was thinking about, you know, even though everybody that I told would have been like, oh yeah, not surprising. We thought you were crazy for trying. Don't worry about it. Like everybody would have accepted it and I had the complete pass for sure. But I couldn't imagine really facing those people, everybody who had said, hey, if anybody can do this, you can do this. Um, you know, all the people who had been there at my bedside to support me through it all, my brother, my parents couldn't imagine telling them. Lee Hagmeyer, that stranger that told me about his experiences, um, I couldn't imagine sharing the news with him. And then most of all, Amber, right? Like I couldn't imagine telling her that I couldn't do it. Um, and so it was that support, that community of support that helped me stick with it through those most difficult times. And I worked with Disability Support Services to get a tutor. And when wasn't, one wasn't enough, I got two. And when two wasn't enough, I got three different tutors and was essentially learning statistics on my own with these tutors and learning how to use uh, you know, screen reading software and statistical software packages and talking calculators uh, and you know, voice memos and all kinds of things that were helping me figure out how to successfully do statistics. So three and a half, Months later, uh, waiting on pins and needles for the grades to post electronically. Uh, and I just can't you know, express enough the feeling of accomplishment, of joy, of pride, when not only did I get a B or in statistics, but I somehow had pulled off an A in statistics. And it's those kind of defining moments that start to shift the story about, man, I feel like if I could do that, I could probably do the rest of this program. And sure enough, you know, three years later, I graduated with a 4.0 and a master's in social work and went on to become a therapist working with kids uh, and families in the community mental health center. Uh, fast forward 14 years later to today. Uh, today, I'm actually the CEO of this organization. Uh, so we have about 100 employees. We serve about 250 kids at any given time in the year and their families. Um, yeah, obviously I've written this book, Beyond the Bear. Uh, I've uh, recorded and produced an album called Cedar Roots where, where you can find my music. Uh, we're currently working on a movie uh, of the book. And perhaps most importantly to me, though, is I get to travel across, around the country, you know, sharing this message about the power of community to support resiliency um, and, you know, to really carry a message of hope uh, to, to others and, and hopefully, therefore, inspire um, others to truly think about and look inside about what is it that makes a life worth living. because. 
in closing, I'll, I just want to share that, you know, the thing that I've learned through all of this is that, you know, bad things happen to everybody, uh, to anybody, right? Like everybody has a bear in their life, so to speak. And it doesn't matter if it's a car accident, a physical disability, a mental health challenge, a divorce. I mean, it could be anything, any type of setback. And oftentimes when these things happen, folks disengage to some extent from living fully. Um, they disengage because it's scared. They disengage because they're sad, they're hurt, they're not motivated. They disengage because they could fail. Um, and it's hard. And we have lots of good excuses and reasons and things like that. But what I've kind of figured out about myself, at least in my own experience, is that the extent to which I disengage really measures the amount to which I'm disabled. And that is to say that there's this inverse and proportional relationship between engaging in life and disability. The less engaged, the more disabled, and the more engaged, the less disabled you become. And so to put it in the words of my own life, the more I've engaged, the bigger my life gets, and the bigger my life gets, the smaller my disability. Thank you. That was amazing. Thank you. You betcha. That was wonderful, Dan. That was just amazing. Well, thank you. And I'm happy to stick around and answer some questions with the time we have left. That would be great. Um, yeah. Does anybody from the uh, audience have uh Oh yeah, we got we got hands been raised right. about the last fifteen Fantastic. minutes. Fantastic! <laughs> I, right. I figured we would. All right, let's start with Pat. Okay. Okay. Yes, I'm unmuted. Um, I really want to say that your experiences really touched me, as far as that's concerned. I've been dealing with this having a, some sort of a vision loss myself for over 40 years now. Um, and my, really my issue with people like that is the way they look at a person that has a disability to me, and especially in a business aspect, that really is to me is really disrespectful to the disabled community because it shows what we can't do. Um, but I found um, that if you just show what your ability is, that you pro and you probably will agree with me here. Uh, if you show your ability, a lot of people will be like, Oh, I didn't know this person could do this because they have a disability. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, 100%. I, I love that. And, and that's exactly exactly the way I look at it, too. It's a show rather than tell. Like, you know, I could waste my breath trying to tell people, but it's far more effective simply to show uh, through actions, you know, and, and then people will say, wow. Um, absolutely. Yeah, and feel free to, uh, I was also going to say, uh, I'm also with a performing arts group for adults with developmental disabilities out here in Portland, where I live. 
Yeah, I'm actually not too far from where you are in California. But um, feel free to uh, reach out to the community and get my information. That's fine. And contact me and I'll be more than happy to share some information about a um, if you're into uh, that kind of stuff. I can share some information with you. Awesome. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. I'm glad you're here Appreciate tonight. That. Thank you, and uh, wonderful job, whoever's uh, doing the moderation tonight. Very wonderful job. Everyone, have a good night. I'll Thank be still you. listening. Now. All right, Melinda. All day. Closed. Oh. Alerts disabled. Okay. Oh my word. Ooh. <laughs> uh, when when I first uh, found your book and uh, at the uh, talking book library, the Colorado Talking Book Library. Um. Oh my goodness. Uh, I could not believe what you endured. I was like, no way. <laughs> you know, I mean, who who alerted you that there was a bear uh, looking at you? How did you know that, that the bear was looking at you? I mean, could you see at the time? I could. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually blinded in as a result of the bear mauling. Yeah. So I could see at the time that we, uh, when we had the initial encounter with the bear. Yeah. And then. Oh my gosh. He came blind as a result. Yeah. Oh. Oh my gosh. I just. Uh, oh my goodness. I, I couldn't believe that that. That. Uh, that. Uh, Grizzly bear attacked you like that. Oh my goodness. Did your dog bark when uh, you were being attacked? For sure. Yeah. Maya was an amazing friend and loyal companion. And absolutely. Uh, so she was barking and going wild, as you would imagine. And when she heard me let out a scream as the bear was dragging me into the alders, she came running back towards me and the bear. And my friend John that I was with sort of gave her, you know, a swift sort of like kick to the chest and yelled at her to get out of there because, you know, she wasn't going to be of any assistance. Um, and so she actually ran all the way back to the river, which was like a 20 minute walk for us. So she ran all the way back to the river and was barking with her hair on end. And one of the uh, fishermen groups that was there had seen us walk through 20 minutes earlier with her and they saw her by herself and they were like, uh, something's not right here. And so they actually followed her back. Um, and they, they got with John, my buddy. And so they were the first people on the scene uh, that were able to start, um, helping to organize the rescue. So. Well, all uh, I can say is March dog and brave dog. For sure. She was a hero for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. she, she helped uh, save your life. 
Absolutely. I mean, my gosh, I, how old were you when that happened to you anyhow? I was 23 uh, when that happened. And uh, yeah, and that was 20 years ago, believe it or not. It was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Right. I'm sorry, I lied. <laughs> I was 25 when it happened. I lied. My wife was 23. Oh, wow. Well, what a great right. presentation, uh, Dan. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting to know you too. You can reach out to me as well. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Melinda. All right. Sure. Melissa. Oh. Melissa, there we you go. Can you hear me? Yes, yes ma'am. All right. Um, good evening, Mr. Bigley. It is a pleasure to meet you and God bless you for just having the, the courage to share that story. Just um, so as a person, um, I, I grew up, I, I'm, I live in Washington State now, but I grew up down south. So I grew up around animals. I lived on a ranch and lived in a farming community for a while. So, you know, I grew up around this kind of stuff. However, 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 it was mostly dogs, horses, cows, but not a bear. Thank God. But if I were in your shoes, I'd probably have terrible nightmares about being attacked by something like that. And I'm just curious. I mean, and if you don't want to share, that's okay too. But do you, do you to this day still have like nightmares about that you're going to get attacked again? Because I know I probably would. And I've been blind all my life. So. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, I do still have nightmares occasionally. Um, you know, fortunately, as a result of both a lot of therapy and also uh, a lot of time now, you know, 20 years later, um, those have decreased a lot um, over the years. And, you know, initially, uh, it was every time I went to sleep, like it just every time. And so that was really sure. bad for the first year or two. Um, and then, it, you know, it slowly got better and it has continued to get better now. But the nice thing for me now is that even when I do have a nightmare, very rarely is it as upsetting or disturbing as it, as it used to be. And so now I'll have nightmares and, you know, I can wake up and, you know, shake it off pretty quickly. Whereas before, uh, that, that was something that would really have a big impact on me uh, and be pretty unsettling. So, uh, yes, I still have them, but not nearly in the same way that I used to. So it, it certainly has gotten better. Yeah. And how are your legs and stuff right now? I'm very fortunate uh, that I'm able, you know, able to walk. Uh, yeah, in, in really... I mean, I have some disfigurements on my face and head. Um, you know, obviously I have some very poorly fitting prosthetic eyes that kind of don't look very natural. So I typically wear sunglasses uh, all the time. Um, I do have some scarring, but as far as my mobility, uh, I get around pretty well. So I'm very fortunate. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for being here. And I'm looking forward to the, when the movie comes out. But just God bless you. You're an amazing inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Okay, you guys, we've got seven minutes and three hands. Okay, so kind of keep your questions so we can get everybody in. All right, Nora. Yeah, hi, pleased to meet you, Dan. Mr. Hey, Dan Nora. Hi, pleased to meet hey. you. And I have a, a, your, your story was very inspiring and very uh, traumatic too, but it was, it, I was very interested in hearing. And my first question is: is um, when you were healing, were you were you having to go into rehab 
type of place, you know, to get healed with your arms and legs and all. Yeah. Okay, and uh, and I probably was stressing too that you were recovered. I'm very glad that you made it through and you recovered and and uh, and did your wife uh, Amber know more about uh anyway I can't remember the question. Um when you were attacked by the bear, uh, was like a bear biting you on the face or gnawing Yeah. You? Yep. Yeah, so it started by uh, you know kind of clawing at my back and and, and arms and legs, um, and then yeah, bit down across my face, uh, unfortunately, and and then yeah, so mm-hmm. that, that was definitely the worst of it. Yeah, but I'm glad yeah. you brought up Amber uh, because I did forget to mention that Amber and I um, we ended Thank up you. we did get married in 2000 and. Uh, six and so we've been married now for 17 years and we have a 14 year old and 14 year old daughter and a 16 year old son uh so we're very very fortunate um so anyway uh yeah we're we're still married happily married and super uh blessed to have two wonderful kids okay so we have five minutes and two hands left so if you guys could ask the question so the moderators can um, get their last things in. That'd be great. All right, Kristen. Hi there, it's Kristen. Um, Hey, Karen. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, I just wanted to say, sorry if you hear my voiceover. I was really happy to hear what you were saying. Oh my God, I hate voiceover. Um, What you were saying about community and how community really helped you through. And um, also right at the end, you were talking about how the more you engage in the world, the less your disability is of uh, as important, you know, because you're more engaging. And, I, I happen to be an artist and, you know, I, I always tell the kids and people that uh, realize that I really do have quite a vision impairment, um, you know, that art is not in my eyes, it's in my heart, you know, and um, there's so many things that can cause vision impairment that I, I think it's so scary for people that never even thought that that could happen. Um, but once, you know, you live the life, you, you realize that you're still the same person. Um, you just do things differently. And there's, there's um, an essence to everyone. And um, I'm really glad that you found yours. Oh, thank you. I, lo- I love how you said that, that it's in your heart. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> All right, yeah. thank you, sweetie. We got one more hand. We want to try to get it in, and we got three minutes left. All right, Courtney. Hello, and um, thank you, Dan, for sharing your story. I just recently finished reading your book, and it has been a very 
um, inspiring story. I'm currently a student at the Hatland Center for the Blind, and um, oh. a couple of my instructors recommended your book to me, and I'm glad that I finally read it. And my question for you is, what advice do you have for people who might be struggling with discouragement or just experiencing overwhelm with navigating the process of learning how to be independent as a blind adult while um, they're undergoing um, blindness training? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, and first of all, say hello to all my friends at the Hatland. Um, that's where I went to school, as you probably know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess I think of it like this. I mean, and sometimes when I share my story, I share it at the risk of making it sound like it was easy, right? But it's not. Um, the, the challenges and the struggles are very real, and there's lots of ups and downs. The way I think about it is like, just because something's hard doesn't mean that I shouldn't do it. And in fact, most things that are hard are when you push through and persevere are the things that actually create and cause the most growth in life. And so there, it could be that sometimes the hard things are the best things to gravitate towards. And so you just kind of kind of embrace the ups and downs and the challenges, even though at times it's not easy and even though at times it can be very defeating. And another sort of mindset thing that I've, that I've focused on is who cares about the failures? Like leave those behind, but regardless how small or insignificant the successes might be, let's hold on to those and build upon those. Like, cause we can build upon successes no matter how big or small they are. And that's really like been my entire journey. Like fundamentally is like these little successes along the way, like, learning how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know what I mean? Uh, le learning how, you know, to put my hand in front of my face so I don't smash my face on things uh, when I bend over. Um, you know, it's like the, all of the little things like just become the stepping stone for the next little thing and the next little thing. And that's really been, and sometimes you do, sometimes you do fail and sometimes you do hurt yourself or whatever, um, but you just move on uh, and keep looking for that next little success to build on if that makes sense. Kayla, it's 10. It's yep. 10 o'clock. It's, um, thank you so mm -hmm. much, Dan. Um, Karen, um, did you have anything left I, you wanted to I say? Do. I have so much to say, but I, no time, no. so. <laughs> I know, exactly. I'm sure other people have, um, you know, other people have questions and I do as well, but we um, don't have time for that. But Dan, um, thank you again. It's our pleasure to have you here um, at this event. And it was, just, I, I just love your message and your resiliency. Um, and I'm just so glad that, um, you know, that I've found your book and read it and that I got to a couple opportunities to speak with you um, prior to this event and here now, and perhaps at another time um, at another, you know, event, you can come, you know, speak to our community. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, thank you again. It was a pleasure. And uh Thank you to Cassandra for hosting and from You're Belinda welcome. for streaming uh, in ACB Media and in Clubhouse. And we thank all of you who came to um, listen and the participants in our audience. We really appreciate Absolutely. all of you being here. Yeah.